go ahead and turn to the minor prophet Hosea. Hosea, if you are not exactly sure where Hosea is, it's right after the book of Daniel. Go find Daniel, it's one of the bigger ones. And Next, keep flipping over a few pages, you'll find Hosea. This morning we're, we're continuing this series over the summer through the minor prophets, the twelve, as they were historically called uh, by the Jews, the usually compiled into one book called the Book of the Twelve. And uh, we've already looked at Joel two weeks ago. And then last week, um, I was not here, and Aaron Wine, I think, was here, and he taught on the book of Amos. I hope you um, got a lot out of that. I know Aaron's a great, a great teacher, and Amos is a very important uh, minor prophet, very often quoted, not, not just uh, you know, by the New Testament, but very often quoted culturally because of his focus on justice. Um, Amos was very often quoted, for example, like in the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, if you've heard Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, he quotes heavily from Amos in that speech. So I, feel, I hope you feel like you have a better understanding of Amos after last week. Um, but this morning we're coming to another hugely important minor prophet, namely Hosea. Really, every minor prophet inscripturated for us is a, is, a, is a hugely important one in its own right. But I say Hosea in particular is a, is a hugely important one just by virtue of the fact of how often he's quoted in the New Testament um, and quoted in very important places. Um, he's quoted by Jesus himself, quoted by Paul, Matthew. We'll see some of that this morning. I hope you've had a chance maybe to read through it. Um, and and if, you, if you don't know the schedule, I think the schedule's been posted somewhere. Instagram, uh, maybe group me, I don't know. Um, it's on the Facebook page. There you go. Um, if, I hope you had a chance to read it, and I, I, I urge you to do that. If you haven't done it, no, no big deal. But like for the rest of the summer, the schedule's out there. I urge you again to read it for yourself. Read it several times the week ahead of uh, coming here on Sunday uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, that's, that's just generally true always. In the fall and spring, we're going to be studying through Acts and uh, taking a chapter a Sunday. And so it'll be easy to keep up with what's coming up next and read it. You'll get more out of it that way. If you've studied it and read it and thought about it, meditated on it, uh, you'll, the Holy Spirit would already shown you things before you hear me say anything, and that's always most important. But secondly, especially this summer as we study through the minor prophets, some of the, some of the prophets like Obadiah, um, it's just one chapter. That's, that's easy. We, we'll probably read the whole thing while we're in here. But it, Hosea is one of the two longest ones at 14 chapters. So we're not going to be able to read or even discuss everything in the book. And, and so while we will skip over some things in here, if you've read it and studied it yourself, you will have skipped nothing. So, um, yeah, so do, do that. I encourage you to do that. Jonah is next week. So that's a fun one next week. Come, come and read through Jonah this week. Um. All right, but either way, we're talking about Hosea this morning, and we're going to think about it from the vantage point of the gospel according to Hosea. Two weeks ago when I taught on Joel, it was the same, the gospel according to Joel. I think when you, when you study Hosea, uh, you, you can see the gospel in his prophecy in some really important ways, like I've already hinted at, especially where it's quoted and how it's quoted in the New Testament. Just know that. I, I said that two weeks ago. Just have that as your... Uh, formula for studying the Bible for yourself. When you're studying the Old Testament, let the New Testament be your guide as to how to understand it and interpret it. All right, we're not going to be able to read the whole thing, so I'm going to give you a little background 
uh, before we dive into uh, the main points. But before we do anything, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, this time to have around your word. Um, Father, this, this, uh, this word that you gave to the prophet Hosea 28 centuries ago is, is as relevant today as it, as it ever was. And I pray that um, we would hear in this word your indictment of the people of Israel of that day. We would, we would see it doesn't pertain to just them, but it pertains to our own culture. It pertains to our own heart. And I pray that we would hear this, um, the heavy words, but see in it the calls for repentance and the hope of the gospel. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get a little background uh, to, to sort of set the stage. And uh, the good thing about studying these prophets, the, the minor prophets, is uh, their historical context, a lot of their historical context, is also found in the Bible. Uh, you, you can, like, for example, uh, when you come to Hosea, they'll often say who was king when they were writing. And so you can go back to the historical books, like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and read about what was going on in the day and time in which they were prophesying. And uh, it's kind of like in the New Testament. When you read one of Paul's letters, if you, read Eph- if you read Ephesians, go back to the book of Acts and read how the, the church in Ephesus was started in the book of Acts. Get the, get the layout of the land before you read the book. It can help in some ways. And we see that here in Hosea. In the very first verse, um, Hosea says, the, it, it writes, the, the, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, remember, I told you two weeks ago that after David and Solomon, after Solomon died, shortly thereafter, the kingdom split into two. Twelve tribes split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom were the northern ten tribes, kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Judah was the larger of those two tribes, kept the name Judah for that reason. Jerusalem uh, was in the southern kingdom in Judah. The temple was there, and therefore there was a uh, faithfulness uh, in Judah for a little bit longer than there was in Israel because we'll see that Israel created their own places of worship and went far afield of, of God's uh, word. But Hosea was prophesying in that northern kingdom. Uh, and it says, that, it says that he was prophesying in the northern kingdom during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Also known, by the way, as Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the second. Uh, although we'll see, we'll, we'll make reference later on to Jero, the first Jeroboam. Jeroboam the first. And we'll see that there were... Uh, some important similarities between Jeroboam the first and the second. And, and th- that's important for understanding Hosea. But Jeroboam the second, during the time in which Hosea was prophesying, Jeroboam the second was unique among the kings of Israel at that time because, um, in one sense, he reigned for a very long time. He reigned as king for 41 years, Second Kings tells us. 41 years, that's a long time, especially... When you consider the king right after him, Zechariah, reigned for six months before he was assassinated. The king right after him was Shalom, and he reigned for one month 
before he was assassinated. So it almost seems like a miracle that Jeroboam II reigned for 41 years. Um, but not only did he reign a long time, but God in some ways blessed them, though they didn't recognize it. Assyria, the major superpower, was on one side, and they were continually chipping away at the border of Israel, encroaching upon them. But during Jeroboam's the second day, the borders on the other side were expanding. It was a time of material prosperity um, and, and luxury. It was a time of agricultural abundance, which in an agrarian economy was everything. There was food, lots of it, good food, feasting. Uh, so under, under Jeroboam the second, the time in which he's writing, it was a time of, it was very prosperous, mostly comfortable time in the northern kingdom. And we'll see that that was a double-edged sword. You might have talked about this last week, I don't know, uh, because Amos had already prophesied about these very things uh, and warned the people about how they were abusing the prosperity that they had been given. Um, so this is during the 8th century B.C., like the mid-700s before Christ, so ish. While Hosea began prophesying in that day, during this very prosperous day and reign of Jeroboam II, uh, Hosea is sometimes called the deathbed prophet. The deathbed prophet. That's a uh, cheery name. But it's, he's called the deathbed prophet because while he began prophesying under Jeroboam II, he continued to prophesy long after he had died. And through those next kings, many of whom were short reigns, assassinated, three assassinations after Jeroboam II. He reigned through, uh, prophesied through all those kings until at last Assyria had finally overtaken Israel in 722 and deported all of them and sent them off into exile. So basically, Hosea was the prophet on, on, of record during the last decades of Israel of its existence. He prophesied until they were no more and carried off to Assyria. His prophecy, therefore, is a sobering one. It's, um, it's quite graphic in its, in its message. I mean, it's gritty, it's real. Uh, because part of the message, at least in the first and third chapters, you'll see in the early part of the book, part of the message that God gave Hosea to deliver to Israel about their unfaithfulness to the Lord, he told Hosea to go marry a woman named Gomer. All right, um, But his wife, Gomer, would become unfaithful to him. In fact, would sell herself into prostitution. Um, she would bear, before that time, she would bear him three children. And that's part of the message of, of Hosea's prophecy, is the names that he gave to these children were... were, were um, they would bear the testimony of Israel's coming judgment from the hand of the Lord. Uh, for example, if you're open to Hosea, like... These three children are mentioned in the first chapter. And in verse 4, uh, the first child was named Jezreel, which the name Jezreel means God sows. God sows. Why would it be called that? Because God was, God was sowing the seeds of his judgment on them that would surely come to pass uh, with the Assyrians. God was sowing his judgment. This first child to be born bore that message in the name Jezreel. God is sowing something. And then a second child was born in verse 6. It's a, it's a daughter that was born. 
and in the English text, the, it's not there, but the, the child's name was Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy. No mercy. Because God was, His mercy was about to run out on them and on their unfaithfulness. And, and, and His mercy was about to run dry. So this second child bore that message. And then a third child was born, which is recorded in verses 8 and 9. Uh, another son named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Not my people. God was about to give, up, give them up to their own rebellious wishes. The covenant that they had broken with Him, He was just going to give them up. They would no longer be His people. So that the children themselves were part of God's message through Hosea, and eventually his wife Gomer would, would sell herself into prostitution. And unfa- she wasn't just merely unfaithful. She sold herself into prostitution. And, and you can see in chapter 3, we, we'll read it a little later on, um, that Hosea had to go buy her back out of prostitution. Um, and he continued to be faithful to her, though she was unfaithful to him. And, and you, the imagery couldn't be any more obvious, right? That God, w- God was saying that Israel was acting toward him like Gomer was acting toward Hosea that uh, they were being intentionally and grossly unfaithful to him as his people, which we'll describe more in a, in a minute, despite God's faithfulness to them. Um, so that, that, that it, it opens in an eye-catching way. Like almost all the prophets, though, if you read them, Hosea, even in the, not just the minor prophets, the major ones, read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, it, it feels like this. It goes back and forth between judgment and opportunity for mercy. Judgment and call to repentance. It's, there's, there's these hard-hitting accusations of unfaithfulness, and then right on the heels, just in the very next verse, will be this soaring, uh, if you repent, I will, I will be your God, you know, I will, I will forgive you. You know, and you see that in, in Hosea. Among all the, the coming judgment and doom, there are, it's intermingled with promises of restoration and uh, salvation and calls for repentance. But in all of it, Hosea is revealing the themes of the gospel. Uh, you know, we, we started two weeks ago in the book of Romans. I don't know if you remember, it was our, our, our sort of theme verse for this whole series in Romans 1-4. Paul, no, excuse me, in... Um, in verses, verses 1 and 2, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So that's what I want us to see. How was it promised beforehand in the prophets? And, we, and, and it was in, in Hosea, almost eight centuries ahead of time. So here's how I want to lay out the book and, and think about this thing. First, I want us to see the depth of rebellion um, among the people of Israel. And I hope as we think about the depth of rebellion in the people, I hope that we can see clearly the ways and maybe some of the reasons that they were rebellious against the Lord, but not see it as the Pharisees would and not be like the Pharisees and clearly see their rebellion, but be totally blind to our own and our own culture. Yeah, I'll save that for later. But then I want us to see, based on that, on, on the depth of their rebellion, God's demand for their repentance. Um, there are calls for repentance that are scattered throughout the book um, that we need to see. They're important ones. Um, 
And then finally coming back to think about the declaration of restoration, the promise of a coming salvation for his people, for those who walk in repentance and not rebellion. So that's how I want us to, uh, to guide this look at this important word. It's, uh, like I said, it's as relevant today as it was 28 centuries ago. Um, all right, let's think first about their depth of rebellion. Trying to summarize, <laughs> it's 14 chapters, um, trying to summarize the sinful rebellion of the people that Hosea was prophesying to, I, I, I want to I focus on two things that help us maybe get a picture of the way in which they were rebellious. And it's an understatement to say it was bad. But again, consider it with humble and self-evaluating eyes. One, here's the, one of the first indictments that God makes through Hosea is that their unfaith, the unfaithfulness of their day, the rebellion of, of, of their day, came as a result of the prosperity. Came as a result of the prosperity that God had given them during the reign of Jeroboam II. I told you it was a double-edged sword. Um, and in their prosperity and in their comfort and in their luxury, uh, they forgot God. That's a, that's a theme over and over again not just in Hosea, but in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures altogether. But, for example, Hosea says in chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit, but the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. Alter, what kind of altars? Idolatry. We'll, we'll say more about that in a minute. They, they built more um, idol altars. Uh, it, uh, there's a lot to say about that. But the more prosperous they were, the more altars they built to these idols. Near the end of the letter in chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, God says, It was I who knew you in the wilderness. Talking about Israel of centuries before. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. Like I said, that's a huge theme all throughout Scripture. The comfort and, comfort and prosperity can easily and dangerously weaken our, our love for God or our, our, even our thoughts for Him at all. That's why Jesus said in the New Testament, you cannot serve both God and money. You will either love the one and hate the other or vice versa. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, that the, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which we'll see here was true. It, it was the root of all kinds of evil here in, in Israel, but it's still true in our hearts today. It, and, the, and, and the money and the desire for riches had led many away from the faith. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6. But because they had forgotten God in that day, all kinds of evil were, was, was prevalent among their, their culture. Uh, and in chapter 4... So chapters 1 and 3, there's 14 chapters. Chapters 1 and 3 is like the biographical section of Hosea and Gomer and their children. Chapters 4 through 14 is basically a lawsuit that God is bringing against Israel. A list of charges that He's bringing against them and what He's going to do as a result. And, uh, and as that begins in chapter 4, he's beginning this, God is beginning this lawsuit listing all that He found them guilty of and all the charges he was bringing against them. Here's how it begins in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, 
For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. It was a wicked time. Much like our own day. That's, that's the first little heads up about what did, the, what did the wickedness of their day look like. It was the fruit of prosperity. That's the way I'd put it. It was the fruit of their prosperity. They forgot God. And, it, and, it, and the love of money and the love of prosperity, like Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, was the root of all kinds of evil in the day. But if you've read through Hosea before coming, you know that it was even darker than that. It was. There was more going on than just lying and stealing and loving money too much. To try to describe what else was going on, remember I said that you could learn a lot by looking back to First and Second Kings and reading the historical context of these books you're studying. And when you turn back to Second Kings chapter 14, you don't have to turn there now. You can read it later, though. It might give you more insight into Hosea, when you turn back to 2 Kings chapter 14, you might jot that down, you can read the brief account of Jeroboam II, Jeroboam the son of Joash. And when you look at that brief account, there's a phrase that you see so much that you're apt to just pass by it and not think much of it. But there's one sentence in that description of Jeroboam II in 2 Kings 14 verse 24 that is important. It says there, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's Jeroboam the first. That last sentence is, the, is actually the, the common refrain that you see among all these kings of Israel. So and so reigned this many years. He was evil and he didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the, uh, the son of Nebat. He didn't depart from those sins. Well, who was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? That's Jeroboam the first. And he was king in Israel about 150 years before, prior to Hosea's day. About 150 years earlier. Right after the kingdom divided between north and south. He was king in the north. You can read about him in 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. And it's, it's quite amazing in the, in the sobering kind of way. Jeroboam the first. Jeroboam the son of Nebat. The one whose sins Jeroboam II did not depart from. Uh, it says specifically about him in 1 Kings 12 that he did not want the people to return to the faith of uh, Scripture. He did not want them to return to the faith of King David. So what he did is he built two golden calves. Yes, he really did. Where does that, what does that make, remind you of? the waywardness in the wilderness. He built two golden calves. Those will make an appearance in Hosea. Built two golden calves and, uh, a, a, for the people to worship, these idols for them to worship. He built new temples and places of worship on what they're called the high places in the north and in the south of the northern kingdom. In the north in Dan, in the southern part of the kingdom in Bethel. These high places, these new temples, he put the calf here and calf here for them to worship. He installed new priests that weren't Levites. He installed new 
uh, feasts and festivals in place of the ones that were told in the law of Moses. You know, and he just created a whole new system of idol worship. And in these high places, the, the, if you read your Old Testament, you'll hear these referred to a lot. The high places. Or so-and-so became king, and he did not destroy the high places. You're like, what in the world? That's these places of worship that Jeroboam I established, these high places. And the worst kinds of evil imaginable took place at these high places. Two evils in particular. First, there was the worship of Baal uh, that took place at these high places. If you, if you grew up in church, you heard the Old Testament, you've probably heard of Baal. You might not really have a good grasp of who Baal was. You know he's probably not a good thing. Who was Baal? Baal was the Canaanite god, little g, of fertility. Agricultural fertility. So they trusted him to bring rain for the crops. That's behind the whole deal with uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the rain, the droughts and the rain. So he was the god of agricultural fertility. Trust him for the rain. He was also the god that they trusted for human fertility, for reproduction, human reproduction. And so if you think about what kind of sacrifices do you offer to a god like that, the sacrifices that they went to these high places, the sacrifices that they offered to Baal were not like the spotless lambs that they offered to the Lord. Um, scripture says in First and Second Kings that there were male cult prostitutes. Hosea mentions them. Male cult prostitutes at these high places. Um... And all kinds of sexual immorality took place. To try to appease Baal and, and bring fertility so they could have kids. Or just to worship sexual pleasure itself. This is what Hosea says about that, by the way, in chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. My people inquire of a piece of wood that's idolatry, idols that they had set up. They inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. And they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains. That's these high places. And burn offerings on the hills under oak poplar and terebinth because their shade is good therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery i will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin so both heterosexual and homosexual Sexual immorality was taking place in these high places with these prostitutes. Like I said, in, 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 in hopes of gaining either Baal's favor, that they could have children, or just worshiping sexual pleasure and fulfillment. 
That's one kind of immorality that took place on these high places. The second, and, and certainly the worst of all kind of evil that was sometimes practiced at these high places. Um, well, let me just read to you. This is not in Hosea, but we'll come back to Hosea in just a second. Here's what we read. Do you remember when back in one one? Look, look back in one one. The word of the Lord that that came to Hosea the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz. You see Ahaz there in Judah. That that was during the day of Hosea. Well, let me just read to you something from Second Kings chapter sixteen during Ahaz's reign in Judah. Ahaz was about 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He sacrificed his child at these high places. And notice what it says. He sacrificed his child not just in the way of the nations that the Lord drove out, but also in the way of the kings of Israel. Not just sexual immorality going on these high places. Child sacrifice was happening at these high places. Surely, Hosea had this in mind. When he wrote in chapter 13, verse 2. Now they sin more and more. And make for themselves metal images. Idols skillfully made of their silver. All of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice. Kiss calves. What calves? Why calves? What did Jeroboam the first make? Two golden calves. And set them up at the high places. In worship of these idols. They sacrificed their children. Those are the things they never departed from. It was an incredibly wicked time. They they loved. Material comfort. Prosperity. Luxury. In our own culture don't we. They, they love sexual immorality of all kinds. Think broadly of our own culture, don't we? They viewed child sacrifice as a good in our own culture, don't we? Abortion is always in the news. It has been since 1973 at least. But it's definitely in view today. I don't know if you keep up with news. There's half a dozen states that have passed very restrictive abortion laws. Our state's one of them, Georgia, Louisiana, Missouri. You would think, and and the laws basically say this, if we can detect a heartbeat, don't kill them. You would think. That that would be something to be celebrated in a culture. But Netflix, 
And Disney saying to Georgia, we're going to pull out everything unless you change your law. We're not going to do any business in Georgia. We're not going to do any filming in Georgia. We're going to take away our money unless you change the law. We're no different. We're no different. That was 28 centuries ago. The masks are a little different, but the demons are the same. That's a hard word, and it might sound odd. It might sound a little foreign in the materialistic West, but it's the biblical truth. The depth of their rebellion is ours. We are Gomer. We're not Hosea. And he called them, and he calls us to repent. There are some important passages about repentance in Hosea. After bringing a whole list of charges against the people. Now, not after. It's, it's so interwoven for ten chapters. But in, in, in interspersed with all these charges of, of unfaithfulness and rebellion and sinfulness. God, God could have rained down fire from heaven on them like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Do it on us, could do it on every culture under heaven right now. But he gave them an opportunity to repent. While they were still pursuing their idols, God was still pursuing them. Chapter 6 opens up with a call to repentance. Beautiful one. Come. Verse 1, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down. And he will bind us up. He urges them to come sincerely in repentance. And not just by formality. Offering this sacrifice or that sacrifice. But come in a heart of repentance. A heart of sorrow. And God says in that same chapter down in verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. If that sounds vaguely familiar, it's because Jesus twice quoted this verse to the Pharisees. He quoted, it, he quoted that verse right there, Hosea 6.6. 6. Jesus quoted that verse to the Pharisees in Matthew 9.13 after he had called Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. And they all went to Matthew's house and had a Matthew party. And all the tax collectors came. All the tax collectors and sinners were there. The Pharisees were grumbling. Jesus quoted on this verse. And then in Matthew 12, when Jesus' disciples picked heads of grain on the Sabbath and ate them, Pharisees, yeah, 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 quoted them in this verse again. Go read Hosea, man. So he's saying here, when you come to repent, truly understand God for who He is. Truly understand your sin for what it is and come sincerely Repenting for your sin, pleading for his mercy. But also, not just that, but in chapter 10, he promises his favor to those who repent. He says in chapter 10, verse 12, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and reign, 
Oh, the, the imagery there. The, the, you know, why would he choose that image? Because they trusted Baal for their reign. You know? Now, I will reign righteousness upon you. The Lord's ready to forgive when we truly repent. And that's how the book ends. With a, with a final invitation to repent in chapter 14. I love the beginning of verse 2. I love the beginning of Hosea 14 too. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Don't come with a sacrifice. Come with words. Confess to the Lord your sin and the rebellion of your heart. Turn away from it. And it says uh, at the end of verse 3, when you come with words, we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. Turn away from the idols of your life and turn to the Lord Himself and turn to Him as your treasure and as your good. And as for those who do, and for all that the Lord would later call to Himself, He promised restoration and salvation. The Gospel is beautiful in Hosea. There are three, three basic passages that I want to show to you that, that reveal the Gospel. The first one's more a neighborhood than a passage. Uh, but three places that, uh, yeah, and it'll have to be quick. This is the best part. Most of the book of Hosea is, has been a very sobering one. And he's charged them with turning away from him. And, and, he, and God knew that they were not going to repent. I mean, he, more than once he just said, I'm doing away with Israel. said it in one four, chapter 1, verse 4. He said it in chapter 9, verse 3. You're done. You're going to go to Assyria. But at the same time, he did promise salvation to those who did come to him and look to him in repentance and faith. And it may not be life in the promised land because you're going to Assyria, but it will mean the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth. How would that come about? There, that's where the three passages come in. First of all, look, look in this neighborhood of chapters 1 through 3 and look how he promises that this salvation would come. Uh... Look first in chapter 1, verse 10. Right after um, he talked about the birth of these three children to Hosea, he says in chapter 1, verse 10, And the third child is not my people. That's his name. But the, verse 10 says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. That's just the promise of Abraham. And in the, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Mark that place. And then look over in chapter 2, verse 23. In the latter part of that verse. Now I will have mercy. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my people. Let me just note that. Chapter 1, verse 10 that we just read, and this verse, these two verses, Paul, Paul quote those, quoted those two verses back to back in Romans chapter 9 and said, this is the Gentiles coming in. So this is the promise that once Israel had turned away, God was going to turn to the Gentiles, turn to us. This is the promise that we would come in repentance and faith. So God is 
promise. Even though Israel had rejected, God was still going to build a people. It may not come from Israel, but He was building His people. He was calling His people. Even as Israel rejected, He would turn to the Gentiles. But in, the, in this same passage, neighborhood, look at chapter 3. It was just five verses. And the Lord said to me, that is Hosea. It's not on the screen, just look at it in your Bible. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. That's Gomer. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her, that's Hosea, bought Gomer again for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. David their king. Interesting. David was dead. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. David their king would come in the latter days. Who, who might that be? That's Jesus. That's Matthew 1.1. That's the opening words of the New Testament. Jesus. And that's confirmed also even within Hosea with the second passage I want to draw your attention to, which is chapter 11, verse 1. Hosea 11, 1. Hosea 11 is basically God just recounting to Israel how He had cared for them as a nation from the beginning. It brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And Hebrews... I miss Hebrews. I've been in Hebrews too long this past year. Hosea 11, 1 says... When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So he refers to the nation of Israel as his son and reminding them that he, he, he delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. But when you come to the Gospel of Matthew, and you come to the New Testament, come to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, remember Joseph and Mary have to flee with the infant Jesus, they have to flee from Bethlehem to Egypt because of Herod's decree to kill all male children under two years old. They stayed there in Egypt until Herod had died and the threat was over. And this is what you read in Matthew 2, 14 and 15. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. That's Hosea 11, 1. So what, what, what originally had to do with the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt and the Exodus is now applied in the New Testament to Jesus, his, his coming out of Egypt with His parents to continue His saving work. There's a lot, lot more uh, richness to that quotation there, but I've got, to, I've got to wrap it up. Let me just recap the gospel we've seen so far in, in Hosea. Chapters 1... Chapter, Chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 23, promised that God would save a people. It may not come from Israel. Paul said it would be the Gentiles. He's going to save a people, even when Israel rejected Him. Chapter 3, verse 5, said that this Savior would come in the line of David. They would look to David, their king. Well, not the literal one. He's dead in a tomb. 
So another, another David, a greater David, they would look to him for their salvation, which was Jesus. And 11, chapter 11, verse 1 says, it would be through this saving work of Jesus that he would save us. At least that's how Matthew read it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what would his saving work be? And that's the third passage I want to show you here that foreshadows the gospel. Chapter 13. Chapter 13. Man, this is awesome. You read chapter 13 and you get near the end of it and, and you have the question of all questions in, in Hosea. It's like you've read all this and then the question of all questions gets asked. Verse 14. Shall I ransom them? <laughs> what am I going to do with them? Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? So that's the question. How would he do it? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Does that sound familiar? Absolutely. That's what Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 and 54 and 55. About what? About the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He's quoting Hosea. So Jesus in the line of David would come and he would obey where Israel and we have disobeyed, giving his life for our sins and rising again from the, third, from the dead on the third day for the salvation of all who believe. And that's the gospel according to Hosea. It's all there. 750 years ahead of time. 